The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in Galatians. We're at the end of the end of the chapter, first, uh, third chapter in Galatians, Galatians 3. Um, I just want to make a, a quick acknowledgement as we're working through this. We are in the weeds of Galatians. <laughs> we have, uh, we've seen the big vista of God's goodness and grace and glory um, at the very top of the beginning of Galatians, and then we've kind of walked down into the valley, and we are amidst the trees, and it can feel like we're covering the same material over and over and over again, and Paul is moving us by degrees and not leaps and bounds. So I'm just going to acknowledge that the sermons like from last week and the week before, and then potentially in the weeks to come, um, it will feel kind of like, haven't we already talked about this? But the point is that Paul is trying to help us understand the gospel's power and giving us true freedom by a grace-given identity in Jesus. So we're just going to say that up front. Now we'll read our passage, and we'll get into this together. I just want to acknowledge we are moving by degrees here, okay? So, Galatians 3, and we're going to pick up here in verse 19. Paul is asking, Why then the law? So why did God give all of the law in this book? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring or the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, as as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ... For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this together, I pray that we would experience the goodness of your grace to us and the promise and power of your life for us to mature in Jesus. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, last I saw, one of the uh, unfortunate dynamics of the prison system is that uh, about 7 out of 10 uh, inmates that are released, um, it's called a recidivism, they go back to prison. They commit some other felony and they go back to prison. Um, this is an unfortunate dynamic of the prison system where once people go uh, commit a crime, they go to prison, um, they often... Uh, end up kind of going in a spiral that it continues to lead them to make decisions back to prison. Maybe this has been your experience, maybe you've been to prison, doesn't bother me. One of the things I want to tr- pull out of this is that one thing that's fascinating to me about some of these statistics is that um, some people will actually, they will get out of prison, they'll be, they'll be in prison for 20 years, they'll get out, and life is so crazy on the outside world, they will actually commit a crime just to get back into prison because for them, it's more comforting and safe and they know who they are, and they know how to do their life once they're back um, in prison. Um, while prison is dehumanizing, right, it is not good, um, it has structure, 
It tells us what to do, provides three meals a day. You know, there is a certain level of comfort, as crazy as it is. And often, um, it is this experience of kind of going in and out of prison um, that is just so crazy to watch, but it is an illustration of what many of us do on the inside. That while some have made decisions that lead them back into prison, um, what Paul actually leads us into here in Galatians 3 is that many of us still continue to make decisions to go back into the prisons of our own lives in various ways. As uh, it is that um, the reason I think, in some ways, is that freedom is a bit of a scary idea. Like, have you ever been in like a context where like suddenly like you're given the keys to the car and you're kind of like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> well, the world is your oyster, you know. As Loki in the Avengers movie says, uh, freedom is life's great lie. Once you accept that in your heart, you will know peace. That is, in being in prison is where peace is found, is what he's saying. Um, but for even non-criminals, the desire to relapse into structure, even a corrupt structure, to find comfort and peace and identity is just as alluring as it might be for these guys and girls that make decisions to go to the actual prison. That's what we find here in Galatians. We find here in Galatians, as Paul is calling the Galatian church, you guys got to mature in Jesus. You have to mature because you are relapsing back into the prison of the Torah. You are relapsing back into the prison of the law. You are going back to the law as though it's going to provide you life and comfort when in reality it's dehumanizing and demoralizing and is not intended for where you are supposed to live with God. You are called to mature in the promise of who God is and what he's given you in Jesus. So we are going to talk about what freedom looks like uh, as we move through Galatians. I'm really, I was saying to Peter, I'm really looking forward to getting Galatians 5 because that gets us out of the weeds of Galatians 3 and 4. But we have to slog through this, work through this. I hope it makes it a little bit more interesting along the way. We will get there, the fruit of the Spirit and all that stuff. But what we want to talk about today is we want to talk about the, Paul's call to maturity in God's promises for us. We need help seeing what it looks like to live a mature spiritual relationship with God's Word and with God's people. So that's what we're going to be looking at. The main point of this passage is mature as God's children through his promises for you. That's the main point of what we're talking about, verses 19 to 29. Mature, don't relapse, mature in your life in Jesus. So what does maturity look like? We're going to just look at two different dynamics from this passage. This is not the exhaustion, the exhaustive list of spiritual maturity, but we're going to look at verses 19 to 24, and we're going to start out by seeing that Maturity looks like a mature relationship with God's story. That's what we're going to look at here to start out with. Mature relationship with God's story. Because you'll see here, verses 21 and 23, God is asking, Paul is asking these questions. Why the law? Okay. Why the law? So he's asking very particular questions. And then he's asking these questions of like, has the law contradicted God's promises? So we're going to pick up here in verse 19. I'm going to read for us, and we'll kind of dissect this together. Why the law? It has been added because of transgressions until the offspring, or I think what you should read there, the seed has come, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We're going to pause there, and we're going to get back to the rest of this. So why the law? Why? Why, what is Paul pulling out here when he asks the question, why the law? The promise to Abraham 
It, we looked at back in Genesis 15 and all that stuff. The promise that, made, that God made to Abraham about giving him the world as his inheritance for believing who God was. It was made by faith. It was made by grace. It was absolutely undeserved. It was unearned by Abraham. And the law came in afterwards. The law came as a way of supplementing what God was saying to Abraham. So God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you the world. And then God says, here's, what, here's who I am and here I, how, how I act, what I'm like. And that's where the law comes in through Moses. So if you think about this, just kind of, we're going to kind of work in different kind of um, onion peels. We're going to kind of, first layers, you know, what is, what is the promise? It is grace. And then what is that other layer that kind of goes with it? The law is by is a supplement to grace. So then what is going on here? Why is the law given? The law is given because the reason that we need grace is because we are so entrenched in sin. <laughs> we have sin gripping us in such a way that it, it leads us to not even begin to see the problem. So you see here, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, right? The law was not added to make us bad. The law was added because we are bad. <laughs> That's the problem. So the law was given not as a way of earning grace, but a way of exposing how much we need grace, right? We get used to a broken world. We get used to misusing, we get used to misusing objects around the house all the time, right? You know, using hammers um, to clean windows, that's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you know, we, we do a lot of weird stuff. We, we need the law to be able to show us how the world was supposed to work. And that's why the law was added so that we could actually see what we need in Jesus or what we need from God. So you think about the big Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, they start out with a declaration of God's grace, if you remember, right? The Ten Commandments start out by saying, I, the Lord, am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Now be my people, right? So you see this pattern of grace and then law added to expose our need for grace, even in, when the, even in the way the law is given. And the way the law is given is designed, so when it says do not lie, it's addressing us in our broken condition, right? Because we are people who will, for example, tell lies from time to time, and we will tell lies and deceive ourselves and deceive others. But that same law also means God loves truth. Well, of course God loves truth, but we are in need of somebody helping us see the transgression. Verse 19, it was added because of transgression so that we can see how much we need this free grace that God gives us. Because we could even be tempted to think God's given us this grace, but really it's because God God knows that I deserve it. But really, grace is undeserved. That's the nature of why the law was given, to show you that you actually could not earn it. So then verse 21. right? Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So you see, the promise is given, has been made. The law is not intended to be the tracks of where you get life. God's law, the Ten Commandments, obeying God's law, that's not how you get new life. It's actually through the grace-given promise of who God is and what he said to you. Right? Life comes through grace. Life doesn't come by doing you actually notice here that the promise has been made here, verse 21. Oh, let me find it. Where is that at? 
losing my place here. There we go. Sorry, that's back in verse 19. Sorry. Until the, spring, the, the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, verse 19. That is a promise that has uh, the, the, the grammatical tenses that it's a perfect tense. I know that some of you grammar nerds in the room are going to know what that means. The rest of us don't understand it. That's why I needed a dictionary, right? Uh, the, pro- the promise is a perfect tense, which means it has a, it's said once and it carries on forever and ever in terms of its implications. And Paul is saying that the law has a temporary place within the whole scheme of the promise being made to give life in who God is. So, for example, a, an example of uh, a vow or a promise that has long-lasting implications. Uh, when I said my wedding vows, I said them once. I don't have to get up every morning and say... I do, even though, I, you know, that's romantic, you know, aw. <laughs> but I said them once, and they last forever, right, or however long, you know. And so, or when you become a citizen of a country, and you, you make your, you, you say the, whatever the vows are, for, I don't even know. This is my own ignorance. You guys are just like, Jacob, stop. And when you say your, your, the vows for becoming a citizen of another country, you say them, and they last forever. You don't have to, like, Recontinue to prove that you're a citizen every year. Sometimes it feels like that for some. Um, but the point is that when God made the promise, he, made, he said it and gave it, and then it lasted forever. But the law was given as a temporary sort of moment to show what was needed in that grace. So the reason Paul's saying this, I know you're going to like, okay, Jake, we get back on track. The reason Paul said this is because at the time, uh, when Paul was writing this to the Galatians, there were, um, it was very prominent in the Jewish tradition to say that the law was basically a permanent fixture of the heavens. It says in one of the, the literature of the time, the wisdom, wisdom literature, that it was an imperishable light. The law of God and the Torah, was an, they would call it this imperishable light. It lasted forever and ever, and all the Torah, so that's not just the Ten Commandments, but all of it, to all the sacrifices and all that stuff, had to last forever. He had to obey them because that is who God was, and that's how his people were to be forever. And Paul's making this very distinct point. Grace, promise, law underneath that, until the promise's realization came. And that realization is Jesus himself, right? That's why he, and that, by the way, that's why he's also making this, this comment about angels there in verse 19. Because there was a whole thing about how, you know, if you add angels into a picture, then everything gets better and glorious, right? He was just saying, like, well, angels are there, but they're not a big deal. This really is about the promised seed. So, verse 19, when we see that the seed or the offspring has been given... That is what he is talking about, this, this promise to Abraham, that God would give the promised grace that he gives. So, just as kind of like, we're going to move on to verse 23 to 24, but just kind of like a summation, right? Law does not give life. The law imprisons. It shows who we are, and we can't get out of who we are. Christ is the one that is the promised one that gives grace and liberates. So, verse 23 to 24. Uh... You guys tracking with me? Are we cool? We, all right. I just realized we're, we're in the weeds. This is kind of you know, difficult stuff. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so what's all this guardian language? Here, we'll pick up on this, and then we'll, kind of, we'll, we'll make some application to this together. 
the guardian language, actually, it's an old word. The, the word guardian there is actually um, pedagogue. So you guys know what a pedagogue is? It, it, it kind of gets used a little bit, but we really don't have this in our, like our current vernacular or how we talk about things. A pedagogue at the time was basically somebody who was a slave to the master of the house to tend to the kids of the house to make sure that they grew up according to their dad's wishes. Like, however the, the master of the house wanted his kids to grow up to be, the pedagogue was charged with making sure that these kids, who he was also a slave to, right? He was a slave to them, but he could actually act like a master of them and tell them this or that or what to do and where to go to school and all that stuff so that they became like what their dad wanted them to be, right? When I say that, like, I know that, like, maybe what comes to mind is, like, a butler or something like that. And, like, this is, like, a glorified, like, on steroids butler. Because, like, we're not talking about Alfred, you know, helping out Batman. We're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about like, Dolores Umbridge, right? If you know what I'm talking about, like, or somebody that, like, I'm like a drill, and, a drill sergeant, right, who is really a taskmaster to help them see you are supposed to grow up. You're not supposed to stay here, right? The point of the illustration here that Paul draws out is to say, the law was there for a time to help you see you are supposed to become like your God himself, but you're not supposed to stay here with all this, you know, no mixed cotton and don't eat the pig and all that stuff. That stuff is just to show you that you need to be different from the people around you, right? There were types and illustrations, and they were a picture to show us, to draw us, to see that God himself wants us to be his children, right? So one commentator says the focus here is a supervisory function of the law and the inferior status of one under such supervision, the temporary nature of such a situation, and the course of salvation history. Okay, what this does then is this begins to kind of crack open this whole question of how do we understand the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why the banner for this whole point is a mature relationship with God's story, because now you're really just talking about right, three-fifths of your Bible or four-fifths of your Bible is all of this huge Old Testament stuff and how to relate that Old Testament to the New Testament stuff. It gets tricky. I will say that it is not, easy, it is not something easy to solve, but it is critical that they do go together, right? And they go together in a very specific way. So, for example, you can throw this up, Matthew 5. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. Uh, do we have that slide? Matthew 5. I can read it for us. Going once. Going twice. It did not get included. Do not think I've come, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. I've come, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right? The purpose of the law is to point towards the promised realization of what God was giving them in himself, this free grace that he promised to Abraham. That's why it's such a big deal, right? And then Jesus says, like, I didn't come to abolish the law, like, to cut that out of your Bible, right? He didn't come to say, all of this stuff, cut it out. He came to say, these point to the last, last part of your Bibles. They point to who Jesus is. So the way we relate to it is to say, okay, they go together in how they realize and help us see the Old Testament, basically, it draws the outline of who Jesus is, and the New Testament fills it in in color. Like, that's one way of understanding how they go together. And the reason this is important is because often we will hear something like, or maybe you have felt something like, this Old Testament God, he is so mean, he is so cruel, well, let's just get rid of that, and we'll take the New Testament God and all of his loving goodness, right? This Old Testament guy seems like he's really bent out of shape. 
this New Testament God seems like he woke up on the right side of the bed, right? Some version of that, right? Actually, this gets addressed in church history. There's a whole thing called the Marcion heresy from the old from the, from, uh, from the early church days, where they base this guy. Parentheses, like this is actually kind of cool, interesting stuff. Like the way we get the the original list of the New Testament books is by addressing the Marcion heresy. Just so you know that. Marcion Heresy said, Old Testament God, let's just cut all that stuff out. New Testament God, super gracious and kind. But Jesus himself says, you can't do that. Jesus actually makes multiple statements along the way. He says, I, not only is that my father back there in the Old Testament, actually at certain moments, that was actually me doing stuff in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament and New Testament have to go together, and they are complicated, and it is not easy. So I, just, I want to acknowledge we just can't, we can't eject it but we have to be thoughtful about it. That's why this whole point that Paul is kind of drawing us through here, say so we have to have a mature relationship to this stuff. We have to think through this carefully. Right? You can't just throw stuff out that you don't like. So how do we relate to God's history? How do we relate to all of this stuff in the Old Testament? It shows us the culture and pictures of what God's family is supposed to be like now that we have life in Christ. That's kind of the main idea here. So how do we apply this? What does this mean for us now? Well, when you read your Bible, you should be reading it in a way of carefully, thoughtfully, and slowly reading it so that you see how Jesus is revealed on every page of the Old Testament, especially. Right? I love the, I don't, like, Jamie's over here and he's like, mention them, mention them. And he's like, I, I like the Bible Project guys. Like, those are like Jamie's, like, Jamie loves, Jamie, do you have Bible Project tattooed, like, over your heart? You want to get it? <laughs> You are such a nerd. <laughs> so, uh, sorry. Here I was joking, and he was like, oh, actually, I've thought about it. I want to get the, this. <laughs> so Bible Project guys on YouTube, they do all these great videos where they really help you understand what's going on in the Old Testament and the big picture scheme of things and how they focus us on Jesus. When we read through our Old Testaments, we shouldn't just be kind of reading through it like just to kind of like get the Bible reading done for the year. Take it slow, take it carefully and thoughtfully, and consider, what's the type of picture going on here in the Old Testament? And how does it show how I need Jesus or what Jesus has done in the New Testament? Like, there, there is like some very simple questions you can ask about when you're reading through the Old Testament. What's going on here? Paul's doing that right here, right? He says at verse 19 and 21, he's asking very particular questions. So go to your Old Testament, and when you're reading it, say, okay, Jesus... How are you revealed in this story? Or how are you revealed in this obscure law? How are you revealed in this, you know, Proverbs, you know, wisdom saying or whatever? They all are in one way or the other pointing to Jesus. I think that there's ways that we can do a better job of equipping you. I would say one way to, to be equipped on this and how to read your Bible so that you, you experience what God's doing in Jesus throughout the whole Bible. Peter's workshops are great. I would, the first one, totally, it's done. Unless you have a time machine, we'll do that again at some point in the future. But there's still two more on Scripture, and then there's spiritual autobiography and the examine, or examine, sorry. Those are all great ways to be able to open your Bible and say, okay, well, Jesus, how, do you, how can you meet me in the, the entire pages of this whole Bible? Okay, are you guys tracking with me? Are we like, are we we're cool? Everybody, anybody need a coffee break or something like that? Okay, we're going to pick up here verse 25. We're going to look at the last section of this, and we're going to see how mature... So we just looked at a mature relationship with God's story, 
and a mature relationship with God's people. So last, last part of this. I think this is the more intriguing part of this passage. It is all under the big idea of God wants you to mature as his disciple, as his child, through his promises for you. Okay, so verse 25. Now, faith has come. We are no longer, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons through faith. For as many of, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither this whole big category of adoption next week and the week after for Easter. Because these are a big deal. But when he says here in verse 25, uh, verse 26, For in Christ you are all sons of God. I just want to address one of the things, and we'll continue to say this through the next few sermons. This is not a sexist term that all the ladies in the room have to become men in order to become disciples of Jesus. The point is not about the, the gender. The point is about the, the cultural picture of the time when he said this. So at the time, and it kind of it's very common in many cultures where the family business is owned by the dad. Everything that the dad owns and has and has achieved is given to the firstborn son. Firstborn son gets it. He gets all the stuff. Too bad for the rest of them, right? They all have to live off of the good graces. Hopefully they had a good relationship with their older brother, right? So firstborn son gets everything. And what Paul is saying here is that when you are in Christ, you have first-class status. You have first-child status. You have the status of receiving. There's no secondary tier. You get everything that God has for you without exception, without any sort of qualification. You have front-row access to God himself and all that he has and is. Right? Men and women are both given first-place status and receiving all that God has for them. So, why do they get this? Why do we get this? And this is where you begin to see this. You just kind of like tilt the passage a little bit. You begin to see that he has now mentioned in Christ. He goes from not saying in Christ at all in this passage. And now when we get to the last few verses of this whole passage, he says in Christ six times in one way or the other. In Christ, with Christ, under Christ. Now that you're in Christ, we just celebrated St. Patrick's Day, right? Christ above me, Christ below me, Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ within me. All of this is within Jesus. You get all of this when you say, Jesus, I'm depending on you in that exact moment. For all of eternity, without exception, you get all of God's goodness for you. And you get all of God's people given to you in a new and radical way. Right? This is what Paul is driving at. Right? Law-keeping makes us, at best, law-keeping makes us, at best, co-workers and, at worst, rivals. Right? When you're in a competition, there's only one person who gets first place. Grace receiving, being a grace recipient, makes us undeserving and yet surprisingly co-heirs in Jesus. Right? That's actually kind of why we like shows like The Office or something like that, because they're supposed to be like, you know, co-workers and rivals and all this stuff, but really by the end of the whole thing, they're all just family, right? We get that in a better way. With you... you some of you guys are Dwight troops. You know, some of you guys are weird ones. We all get this in Jesus, and we get to be family in him. We get to be in a new and incredibly surprising way. And this is why he talks about the, this identity of baptism. Right, just pick this up here. I promise I did not plan this out this way, speaking of baptisms for Easter. For as many of you as 
for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. When Paul thinks about identity, he thinks about how you have been identified in Jesus through your baptism. Actually, you know what's been fascinating here? When um, scholars look at this passage, they actually think that this section, verse 27 and 28, are actually early church like baptismal creeds. Like they would they say, they look at that and they say, you know what, verse 26, you can have verse 26 and 29 and cut out 27 and 28 and there's no logic of the passage lost. So you see, right, for, um, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. And then skip down verse 29, and if you are Christ, right, so you can actually cut out verse 27 and 28 and not actually lose anything in the passage. But Paul drives at putting this in there because this is critical for the early church's understanding of what it means to be in Jesus. You are baptized. And so actually probably what they would do is they would like, they would get them in the water and they would like say this passage and then they would be baptized, right? And as a radical way of saying, I'm in Jesus now, right? Actually, can I just tell you some really, some really weird stuff from the early church? There's not going to early church, they took this very seriously. Um, and they took it seriously in some weird ways where I'm kind of like, eh, not how I would have done things, right? But they look at that and they say, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, what they would do in the early church is they would do baptisms in the nude. Not in front of the church, okay? <laughs> right? This is not like that. They would actually have like a tent over the baptism and like the pastor would like stick his hand through the veil and like say the thing and they baptize. But then they would come out and they would put on white robes. So the whole thing, not just the water, but coming out was a dramatization. Now, by the way, we're going to do baptism. We're not going to do it in the nude, right? We really like clothes around here. I just, <laughs> just want to make that really clear. <laughs> Big fan of clothes. Like them a lot. Um, but they would come out of the water and they would put a white robe on them that symbolized this whole thing of now you've put on Christ. You've gone down and all that you had to offer was nothing. And now you in Jesus, you've received everything. You've received it all free and you are now, look, we're all, and they would actually all be wearing white robes, I think. And they'd be wearing white robes and you'd come out, you wear white robes. So now we are all pure in Jesus. So it's a little weird, right? But at the same time, it's profoundly dramatic in what the emphasis is on, right? We are now in one family made pure by Jesus himself for who he is. And we get all of each other. That's where we get verse 28. So, by the way, let me just say this real quick. If you've not been baptized, uh, we're not going to do it like the early church. We're going to do it like we do it. <laughs> but we are going to do baptisms. I would love to celebrate that moment with you. By the way, for our kids... Talk to your parents. If you've come to faith in Jesus and you want to get baptized, talk to your parents. We'll talk to you. Make sure everybody's cool. But we'd love to do that. I, I just That's just a little, the passive demands it. So, But verse 28, let me read this, and I, this is where I want to spend a little bit of some time talking about this. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you hear everything I've just said, you, you go into the water full of the shame and 
decay and brokenness of this world, and then you come out new and alive in Jesus, receiving all of what God has given you. You get all of God's people thrown in, and God himself is your dad. This is an incredible family, and you look at this passage, and you can just feel like, why don't we experience this? This can be a very painful passage to read. Because it holds out this lofty idea of what God's children should be, what they should be like, how they should relate to each other. And yet we look at this passage and we think the entire, maybe you experience this as your entire church experience as a hypocrite to this passage. Right? Because the church can often be defined by racism and segregation. The church can often be decided, this, described, the, experienced as the haves and the haves-nots. The church can often be experienced as men dominating over women. That is, unfortunately, the regular experience of many. Right? This can be a painful passage to read. Because it, the promised reality often creates the greatest heartache and requires the greatest work. Often in, our, in churches, women are demeaned or disbelieved. Men are ridiculed for not being manly enough. Successful people are rewarded with church leadership. And we have, unfortunately, still the experience that Sunday morning can often be the most segregated hour of the, of the week. How do we respond to this? Right? This passage is certainly cracks open a number of issues that we can just dive right into. I just want to acknowledge that this can be painful. How do we respond to this? I think the way we respond to this is to couch this passage in the promise of God's grace and the promise of who Jesus is for us amidst this, amidst what's going on here. The promise of grace and new life is based on Jesus' faithfulness. To the extent that we have, and I don't know if we have at King's Cross, I'm certainly open for correction. To the extent that we have failed or will fail in many areas that this verse calls out, and living up to the promised newness of life is for God's people, we are invited to fresh repentance and new grace for living out this promise, for living out this reality. We either have or will fail at it. We will have to find faith and repentance for those things. But this is given to us as a promise for what we can hope for in our life together. Right? We don't have to live up to a certain level of repentance or faith until we receive it. This morning we can even respond and say, Jesus, I have failed. Or I know that I'm prone to. Help me. And then we can experience the new power of this verse for us. Because in Jesus, there is no slave, there is no free that have a, a special privilege with Jesus. Right? No man or woman, just because I'm a pastor, does not give me special privilege with Jesus. Nobody has special privilege with Jesus over another. No race has special privilege with Jesus over another. So I asked a friend of mine, um, she's, uh, her name is Auburn Powell. She's actually a grad student, uh, Ph.D. in Jeremiah. She's getting an Old Testament Ph.D. out of Boy, uh, Boyce University, Beeson University in Chicago, one of those super smart schools. She's wicked smart, as you would say. And she's a lifter. Um, I'm just saying. But I asked her, I said, Auburn, what does this verse, what does this verse mean for you as if she's, I don't know when you become a theologian, but like, 
like a professional one, but she's getting a PhD in theology. I figured she's a theologian or whatever. But she said this, I think for me, it's re- it reminds me that I may trans- that in Christ, I transcend human categories of what is, quote, typically female. It's kind of a glass ceiling shattering moment. I am more than what society, des- what society decides a girl should be, and the Spirit gives me gifts regardless of my gender. Right? This is, I think, I mean, all, she's actually, I'm excited to see where her career goes because she's a brilliant woman, incredible theologian. I'm excited to see what God does through her and for the church. And it should be that we celebrate all different expressions of God's goodness for us through each other and each of us and how we're different, right? So as we have more people come to Jesus from the recovery community, they're going to express Jesus in a different cultural way. As we have men and women growing in their leadership and spiritual capacities, they are going to express Jesus in different ways. But the invitation here in this passage is that we do not relate to each other based on expectations. We do not relate to each other based on status. We do not relate to each other based on any of those sort of stigmas. We relate to each other, especially in Christ, as being in Christ and empowered by the living Christ. That doesn't mean that we don't like that Jesus washes away, you know, I'm a somehow I'm a business owner and then suddenly I have to give everything away. Right? It doesn't mean that like somehow Jesus washes away your maleness or your femaleness. Like it doesn't mean that those things are gone, but that means that we relate to each other as in Jesus and only in Jesus, through him and for him, because he is the one who invites all different types of people to the table. Through his story, he has shown us what kind of world he is building. And it is, a, it is a world that is built on the goodness, faithfulness, and promise of who Jesus is. So you see, I want to point this out here in this last moment, and then we'll close. Verse 20, we skipped over this. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And then we kind of skip down here in this passage. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to, prom- to promise. The, the flow of this passage, actually the quotation there in verse 20, is from Deuteronomy 6.4, where it says, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then it's an allusion to Isaiah 63, uh, verse 9, where it says that the Lord himself will save you. Right? This maturing that God wants for you, this maturing that he's called you into in Jesus, is so that God himself, not through the law, so that you keep, the, that you keep this list of spiritual to-dos, but that God himself will have a direct relationship with you in and through Jesus to mature you to be more like Jesus. Right? The flow of this passage is to say, look, the law was there for a purpose so that you would see how much you need God's grace for you in Jesus. But it's not so that you just kind of get managed off to the side and that's how God wants to deal with you. This whole book is about how God himself has invited you to be in his family, to have a direct relationship with you. That's what we're going to look at in verse in chapter 4. That's, that's kind of like the preview for next week's sermon. This is how we mature. Being with our dad in Jesus, who's promised to be for us and with us in Christ, and who never leaves. That's where true freedom comes from, where maturity comes from, God himself and being his child. So the passage calls us, mature as God's child through his promises for you. So we mature by seeing all that God has done for us in Jesus. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. 
Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.